Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. I'm so excited for the show today. Why? Because we're taking a trip under the sea. Under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. It's obviously going to be a pretty nostalgic trip for you, Jake. Oh, yeah. Revisiting vintage Disney. I loved watching The Little Mermaid when it first came out. But today we have a couple of fishy stories for you. You may have heard about a month or so back about the federal government's plan to cull a massive amount of carp from our river systems, which apparently could see, get this, nearly 500,000 tonnes of carp die off within 48 hours. And where are they going to put 500,000 tonnes of carp? Just like alongside the riverbed, you know, oh. a moat. A oh, moat, a moat of carp. A moat of carp. <laughs> That's going to get pretty fishy. Well, we're going to answer all those questions a little later on. But first... You've got fish that are living together that for all intents and purposes should be competing with one another. Like I looked at that and I'm like what you know what's and it was the first time I only saw one and then we kept finding this like again and again and again and we're like hey something's going on here and these fish have learned to survive together in a way cooperatively that I don't think we fully understand but it's pretty awesome at the same time little fish sharing their homes with other fish that is literally one of the cutest things I've ever heard (laughs) But who's shacking up with who? Like, give me the goss. Well, we'll get to the goss in a little bit. But for you to understand why these fish are doing this, I'm going to take you on a journey. A journey to the EAC. EAC, that sounds really familiar. Where have I heard that before? Okay, Crush. Listen, I need to get to the East Australian Current. EAC. dude. You're riding it, dude. Check it out. I love Crush the Turtle. He is so awesome. Yeah, he was so chill right in that current. And in the movie, they got the current part right. The EAC is a boundary current that starts at the top of Queensland and stretches down past New South Wales and Victoria before heading into the Tasman. But Nemo and turtles aren't normally the ones who hitch a ride. Oh, yes. Uh, Now, Nemo did a pretty good job overall, but the adults in terms of coral reefs are not the ones that disperse. So no marlin and no dory, unfortunately, but uh, certainly the little larvae come down every year. That's Dave Booth. He's a professor of marine ecology at the University of Technology, Sydney. But it also brings propagules for fish of, of al- there's algae, there's corals, all sorts of things. But the fish larvae hit Sydney and places further south and develop a fair way. And some of them even overwinter and become adults. The little larvae in that fast current. Don't you remember what happened to Nemo's dad? Okay, grab shell, dude. Grab what? So, yeah, it's fast, but Dave thinks they're born ready for it. Born ready, hey? Oh, yeah. And so these fish develop slowly in this warm water, and these guys can also swim amazingly well, almost against that current, even though they're tiny. So they have a lot of options to to get here. And they have a lot of time to just chill out and enjoy the ride. Uh, We've been able to find out how long these fish have have been at large by a little bone in their ear, which allows us to age them like the rings of a tree. And we've shown that um, some of these, for instance, butterfly fish have been at large about 40 days or so. 
And when we do the, the uh, calculations of if they jumped on the current and floated, they could get here from the southern reef in 40 days. So about a month or so in the ocean. Obviously, in the movies, everything is quicker because Nemo's dad didn't really have a month to just chill in the current trying <laughs> to find Nemo. So Marlon, Nemo's dad, came down the East Australian current looking for Nemo. But why did the other organisms take the trip? Well, these reef fish larvae, unlike humans that might have a couple of kids, they have thousands of kids. And rather than looking after them, a lot of them just disperse them. And so they go where the currents take them. And a lot of them will come back to the same area or head north or whatever. But if a proportion of them, obviously, uh, get entrained in this southward flowing East Australian current. So whether it's an adaptive thing or it's just one of those things, and, and ironically, it might have been maladaptive in the olden days, but now with climate change, perhaps it is a useful thing to have your larvae dispersing down as far as Sydney, because in the future with the horrible uh, coral bleaching we're seeing, maybe it's a refuge. But with climate change effects like warming waters and coral bleaching, it's making things pretty... Well, it's very, very inconsistent year to year. The only consistent thing is that the East Australian current ramps up around January and dies away about April, May or something like that. On the West Coast, we have another one called the Lewin current, incidentally, that does exactly the same thing, but in winter. And it brings tropical fish down to places like Perth, right Ness Island, which they normally wouldn't get to. And so with climate change, we know that that current is strengthening. So not only is it bringing warmer water, it's going further south and it's, it's sort of reaching you know, so many kilometres per year further south each year. So that's a clear reason why we expect more of these fish. And it turns out this year has been the granddaddy of them all with little fish coming down. It might sound kind of weird when I say, where will these fish go once they reach the end, considering how big the ocean is? But with more and more fish coming down through the current and more habitats being destroyed because of things like climate change or human damage to the reef, I think it's pretty safe to say, where will the fish go? Um, we've done a little bit of work on who they're competing with, because obviously there's already fish down here. Um, we are losing some of those, so perhaps they're sort of taking up a bit of the vacant space. We do see them schooling with local species, and that's very interesting to watch those interactions. Um, but certainly, you know, they occupy maybe 10 to 20% of the fish fauna in Sydney for a few months anyway, you know, February, March, April. Then they die away, mostly. But really, I think, uh, you know, we, you know, the next... Next decade or so will really tell to see whether the, the reef can persist. And, you know, I don't think we're the great safe haven down here for those fish. You've got me all depressed now, Jake. Mm. I'm just imagining all these little fishies swimming around aimlessly trying to find somewhere to stay. Isn't that what fish kind of do already? Yeah, but, like, it's just nice to have a home to go back to, you know? Yeah, and most of them do. Mostly a lot of them live under seabeds in little communities of fish. Some live in underwater caves, some under rocks, and some live in an... Enemy and enemies. Okay, okay, don't hurt yourself. Welcome aboard. Anemones. I understand your struggle, Nemo. It's a hard word to say. <laughs> so, what do clownfish have to do with the homeless fish? You remember what I said at the start about a species of fish opening up its home to others. Mm-hmm. Well, according to some new research undertaken by a team at the University of Technology, Sydney, clownfish are becoming the Airbnb service of the sea. (laughs) Here's Emma Camp. She's one of the researchers on the team. 
And what we found is that actually when habitats are low, so clownfish um, are reliant on anemones, so they're a really good study organism because they've got a very specific home that they like to live in. And what we see is when that home or you know the anemone is not very abundant, so they've got low number of homes available, some species of clownfish will actually share that habitat. So they'll live together um, without increased aggression, without kind of any obvious detriment that we could see and they'll live happily together and sharing that space. Which came as a surprise to Emma. I have been bit by a clownfish, so they're not they're not always so friendly. Um, they're very territorial, so they, they protect their host, and especially if they've got um, babies or eggs around, then they are, you know, they're very territorial, and some are a lot more territorial than others. But if you tread a little too close to a pissed-off clownfish, they'll let you know. It sounds like a click, it's like a like that sort of noise, but yeah, it, it will uh, come up and... Um, yeah, you'll hear it and it will it will be deterring, I'm sure, more so to another fish. But yeah, it gives you an awareness that it's coming and hopefully if I'd heard that, it wouldn't have bit me that time. So. <laughs> <laughs> but clownfish bites aside, this sort of behaviour gives a fascinating insight into why they're opening up their anemone homes for other species. When we were in areas where there were lots, um, like lots of fish, it didn't that didn't encourage or discourage them to live together. The only factor that we saw was when there were more fish than there were available habitat, then they would live together. So even though we weren't looking specifically at whether habitat was or was not lost, what we did see was in areas where you've got not enough host anemones but lots of clownfish, they were forced to live together. So if we were considering the future and we're considering habitat loss through climate change, whether or not that's lost through thermal anomalies such as bleaching or whether or not it's just physical destruction, we can kind of make that transition to, to think, well, if if there's times when there isn't enough habitat available naturally, if that's going to worsen in the future, then these fish are going to be forced either to compete with each other or to find a way to live together. And at the moment, obviously, we've seen that in nature, they, they are able to live together. Now, that's what I want to hear. Clownfish working together rather than tearing each other apart. Pure teamwork. I think we humans should be taking notes on this. <laughs> Very true. Although it doesn't mean it's a bright future for everyone. The kind of less dominant species when they live together was not found um, to be reproductively active that we've seen so that could be a, a major limitation that if they live together and only one species is reproducing at some point that could be kind of a, a major detriment of that fish and they may have to leave and find another anemone where they can be the dominant one where they can reproduce or you know they run the risk of um, kind of being wiped out in a certain area. So wait what what species exactly are they letting into their homes? Mostly it seems to be other species of clownfish and that's still a lot seeing as there are 30 species of clownfish Mm -hmm. but you never know what may happen down the track. Initially we thought that it would be ones that were most similar that would allow them to kind of be together because maybe they didn't notice as much that it was too different but actually we see very different ones so we see there's a, a small one called a pink and it's just it's about an inch in size all pink with a white stripe versus you know your classic Nemo um, looking fish and they live together quite happily and that's interesting because they're so different in terms of the way that they look but the ones that look more similar they, they seem to kind of not live together as often. Flashback to them being territorial but this goes back to where we started Why are the clownfish doing this? Is it purely a strength in numbers game when habitats are dying out? 
Or is it something else? Like, can they feel the water changing, and they're switching game before disaster happens? Whether or not they're conscious of, you know, what the changes that going around them,、um, I wouldn't be able to answer. But I think what what we do know is that they need a house the same as anybody, anyone else. And if your houses are not available, you're going to try and find a means、um, to survive. If they have to live together or or not survive, they're going to live together. And you know, it's a nice story that these clownfish have agreed to kind of accept each other and find a way to live together, even if it is, you know, that the、um, Less dominant one is kind of shunned to the edge a little bit. It's still, you know, a step forward in that. If not, it probably wouldn't survive at all. So, Emma Camp, PhD researcher at UTS in the Coral Reef Research Unit. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. You don't eat fish, do you, Jake? Not really. I, I like some fish, but the texture. I know everyone says it's about the texture, but I just can't seem to like handle it. But fish, no, I don't eat a whole lot of but it. But you came back from Japan earlier this year. Like, well, how did you survive? Well, when I was in Japan, I obviously ate fish. But now that I'm back home, I, it doesn't really compare. And I'm like, nah. So you wouldn't eat carp infected with herpes? Oh yes, just cook that Change up. Change your for mind,、me. just like that. <laughs> no way, no. Well, the Australian government in April announced a fifteen million dollar project to kill off ninety five percent of the carp in our river system by infecting them with herpes. But how is this plan going to work, and how foolproof is it? I spoke with Joseph Perra, PhD student in the Freshwater Ecology Research Group at UTS, to find out. If it works, it'll be、uh, a great thing for the rivers of New South Wales because this will be the first major change in the environment since since we've pretty much been here. It'll give some of the native fish a chance to come back, particularly aquatic plants too, because they they stir up the the bottom and make it quite turbid. And a lot of the plants that live in the in the rivers and streams and lakes struggle through the turbidity. So there, there's going to be, I think, a quantum shift in the next couple of years, hopefully. Barnaby Joyce called them the rabbits of the sea. Are they really the rabbits of the sea?、Uh, I guess they are in a way that they have a really high fecundity, and that they can breed. You know, each carp will have at least a million eggs if it's about two or three kilos. So their reproduction rate is phenomenal. Probably. Way faster than a rabbit would be, anyway. So right. So people see when there's an issue with populations in a species, they're like, "We have to get rid of it before carp take over the world." <laughs> yeah, I guess they're the they're perfect invasive species. They can come in、um, in low numbers and in a short time really dominate the system and just take over. And like we have at the moment, it hasn't taken that long for them to get to ninety ninety five percent of the、um, of the biomass of rivers. So, what species of fish、uh, have carp? Displaced the most in their kind of like continuous reproductive cycle. That's a really good question, and I'm not really sure I have an answer for it. But I will say what they do is they they change the、um, the environment so they make it unsuitable for a lot of fish species. So a lot of、um, a lot of smaller fish species which feed on zooplankton, if they make everything turbid, you tend to lose the zooplankton community tends to drop, and so they, there's nothing for them. So a lot of the smaller fish have gone. I'm not really sure. That's that's what we're hoping. I guess we're going to answer with this. We might see spikes in other fish species rise, hopefully, over the next three to four years. But it's it's a bit of a, a bit of an unknown. 
So it's initially the Murray-Darling system, right, that they're releasing it into, and that's a large span of area in itself. But then what? It, it, will it cross over into other rivers uh, across Australia? Uh, what's the geographical area we're kind of looking at here? I guess um, any river where there's carp, they're potentially going to release it into. I, but the main one is the Murray-Darling because it is the biggest river system we've got and probably the one that's most heavily impacted by carp. Uh, beyond that, um, I'm not really sure how fisheries would go with it, but um, all through New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland, and WA have a, a couple of small pockets. But yeah, they're pretty tolerant fish, and they can cope with most of the environments that Australia can throw up at them. I guess maybe from a logistical point of view, it might be better to, to hit one river at a time so you can have a group of guys working on cleanup. Otherwise, um, you're going to have resources across four states trying to clean it up. So. How can we be sure that it won't kill off the... What, what do carp swim with? The koi. <laughs> oh, the cod, Murray cod, the, the cod, native yeah. Murray cod. CSIRO have done a, a lot of testing with all the other native fish, and they've tested the fish and seen how they reacted with the uh, virus. And so far, from uh, my recollections, is it's come up okay against everything. They've also tested against birds and other mammals and stuff. So they wouldn't have got to here if it had any sort of impact because it doesn't even affect goldfish. They're their closest cousin that we've got here. They'll be quite happily swimming around without any impact. So, How about even just the water? If Depending on how they're going to release this virus, releasing it into the water to affect the carp, what, what is that our drinking water? What if we then eat the carp that then they then kill? How would that affect us? Well, there is a potential on the drinking water side. Um, yeah, there is. Uh, if, if you have a whole lot of dead fish in a, a water body, there is a potential for taste and odor issues. You don't want your, your drinking water to taste like fish. <laughs> so, um, And you can also have, as all the fish die, you can have a couple of things happen. One, you can have the decomposing body absorb all the oxygen from the bacteria taking up all the oxygen so you end up with no oxygen in the water and then you might end up with the low oxygen killing other things as well. The other one is that if you have a whole lot of fish die, you could potentially have a release of nutrients and then that could follow an algal bloom and then you'll have an algal bloom and algal algal blooms can be toxic. So they're going to have to monitor this carefully and make sure that they get on top of it in the first couple of weeks when the fish get affected. In um, China and stuff, it's a main food source. So when they had the um, the virus, it was, was bad news for them because they lost a lot of their aquaculture. So, so what happened in China with with well, the herpes virus? Well, I think I think there's been a, quite a few outbreaks throughout in Asia sorry, that have happened that haven't actually been re- released like we have here deliberately. They were accidentally and, and so they've decimated their um, aquaculture. I mean, they've I guess they've recovered to some extent now, but carp is a major aquaculture fish in China and there's a lot of people to feed. So Interesting that we're now purposefully trying to infect carp with a strain of the herpes virus, whereas in China it was unintentional. I'm assuming it was. I'll have to, to look it up, but I'm pretty sure that in particular there and in, in the UK as well, where they, I think it was one of the first few places where it was released, they had this issue of fish just dying and you know not really sure what it was so well back to australia they're trying to get rid of all of these carp with this strain of herpes how how can they use herpes to get rid of all these carp um it's it's a virus but it's it's quite a a deadly one for carp so it really does take out a lot of the fish at least 70 80 percent sometimes up to 90 percent will all die within i think 48 hours of being in contact with the virus and having the right temperature. So um, 
I'd be really intrigued to understand exactly how they're going to release it because it is epic, the the size and the scale that they're going to release this across. So long as they clear them out, they should be okay. What if the herpes release works well and we get rid of the carp that we need? Happy days. What if it works too well and we lose all our carp? What sort of effect might that have on our biological diversity in in our waterbeds or in our water well, here in Australia? And that's exactly what I'm looking at is to see what the big change is going to be. And hopefully... Um, there will be a period, uh, I know that there's been some um, news about our native fish saying that they love eating, uh, Murray cod love eating carp, and they do. And so there's going to be a bit of a change in the way the system works because suddenly you're going to take out a lot of their food source. But hopefully it'll be made up by, by other native fish coming in, so taking up the niche. Once the carp are out, you'll have potentially more uh, macrophytes and aquatic plants. And hopefully you'll be that'll be able to support other communities such as um, more um, macroinvertebrates and other fish species that like living in those areas. Joseph Perra, PhD student in the Freshwater Ecology Research Group at the University of Technology, Sydney. So, Ellen, are you going to brave the carp for dinner one time? Well, look, it's not exactly the top of my must-eat list, but uh, if the herpes won't hurt me, you know, I wouldn't say no. I was speaking to my friend the other day who, at the end of last year, went to Ghana for a month with an organisation he found online. And while he was over there, he did a couple of projects, and and the main one was to build a bridge for a community that was isolated from getting to and from a certain water supply. And it got me thinking, when you go over to do this sort of volunteer tourism, are you really a tourist? Well, I totally think so. I think you're 100% a tourist because you're still flying over there. You're spending money in that country, you know, on food, on transport. So, yeah, I totally think you're still a tourist. Well, Stephen Waring is an associate professor from the University of Technology Sydney Business School and an expert in tourism. So I asked him for his thoughts. If you were to take all the early people on those programs would never see themselves as a tourist. They don't see it as a holiday, they see it as a genuine attempt to provide some sorts of assistance to communities where they're getting to help those communities. But yeah, if you were to say to them in that era that you're a tourist, they would feel insulted, I would say. They, they don't see it as that. So, And a lot of volunteer tourists, particularly ones that go with NGOs, that are spending up to a year to learn a language and do all of that additional sort of research, don't see themselves as volunteer tourists. But if you look at that wider spectrum of what it's about, it does fall within that. But it's not, a, yeah, it isn't a mainstream tourism activity, or it wasn't. It could now be called that with, you know, major travel companies like STA. Now you can do volunteer tourism. Now, once it got commodified, commercialised, yeah. You can see that, you know, you might go to Cusco and you might volunteer there to teach English and you might do that for two hours a day and the rest of the time they're doing just what every other backpacker's doing, which is, you know, basically partying and, and, and sort of, yeah, having a good time and having a holiday. It's funny that people might not view themselves as a tourist when they're doing this because, in fact, it's a $2.6 billion industry. Why is it such an expensive industry? 
Well, a lot of the companies have got into it because you can charge over the margin. So the profit margin for a travel agent is probably, you know, in the vicinity of about 10%, maybe a little bit more. Now, you can charge another 5% for volunteer tourism on that altruistic sort of idea of I'm going to do something and that money I'm giving to that organisation is then able to benefit that community. Now, originally when it was NGOs, most of that money would probably be going into those communities. Now what's happening is it's been taken off the top by some of the, the operators. So they're making a higher level profit from doing it than they would be from what you call mainstream tourism. So that's why they've played the game of entering into that game. Now that's not to say they're not providing benefits on ground, but there are major problems with that approach I think and and one of those is like in the original NGOs they were very much a cradle to grave operation like they would be responsible for recruiting running going into the communities looking at projects working out with the communities how to do those projects and then running those programs coming back and in a lot of cases those the youth demographic that was doing that were coming back and contributing something to their community when they got back about what they'd learnt and what they were doing. Now now it's a bit more of a, with a commercial operator, it's a bit more, we'll, we'll recruit them and that's mainly through social media and also through uh, marketing and advertising. And they pay a fee. They then just do a little, you know, short bit of orientation, go to that country and then it's outsourced. So in that supply chain management approach, all of that project on ground with communities outsourced to other companies or on, on site and so the engagement there is nowhere near as much and it also devolves the ethical responsibility so oh, someone else is doing that so it doesn't have to be as good. How about the effect that a volunteer tourist or an organisation might have on a community? Because essentially for most people who do it, it's they might have a plan, they go over for a month to a community and then after a month they come back home. How is the community benefited by what is happening with a volunteer tourist organisation? Yeah, and, and that, that varies Like in terms of you want to have a look at what sorts of projects and how they've come up with those projects. So if that community really, really has a project there that they need, uh, and that's been developed, probably in association with an NGO, like teaching English is your standard one now. And, and my question mark is, well, how does that benefit that community? Because you know, if you're there for a month with someone that's never been taught how to teach English, is but communities will want to have that because the money coming in from those volunteer tourists is just like another tourism organisation. It's bringing money into the community. So whereas... The, the physical projects are good. Like I've seen projects where they've built bridges across um, rivers so that access to a community. Now, they needed the engineering skills. They would never have been able to get those skills. They would never have been able to get the, the resources to build those bridges, and that's been sourced by the volunteers. So that organisation's gone and got donations, got a whole bunch of other things to be able to do that. So physical projects are easy to assess. Uh, when it gets to smaller projects, then you've got to have a look at individual ones. But, but generally, like my advice would be stay away from orphanage tourism. Um, anything to do with orphanages is fairly complicated and there can be benefits but it's really difficult and at the moment I'd say that 80% of the programs that are running in that area would be very, very sort of questionable. How so? Just the, the exposure of short-term, of a volunteer to short-term to orphans uh, is maybe not beneficial to the orphans. Whereas if it's a program where you're doing construction or other work outside of the orphanage, not with the direct contact with the orphans, then that would be fine. But when it involves engaging with those kids on a daily basis, I would say there's question marks if that's not being done for a year to two years. Because the orphans might develop a bond and then once they leave, they, Yeah, they just happens? walk away. Yeah, what happens? 
happens as a result of that and feel good for the volunteer tourist and for a short time I feel good for the, the you know the orphans but there's question marks there about the long-term sort of um, benefit of that yeah I guess that then comes back to the altruistic side of what the volunteer tourist expects to get out of it because it's a little bit showboaty or it can get a little bit showboaty oh absolutely peer recognition is one of the motivators uh, so it says that I want to be able to tell everybody when I get back that I volunteered and helped a community. And when I'm over there, I'm sort of making sure that I'm posting on Facebook or on pictures of me and what I'm doing. And that's, that's my motivator. You know, that's, uh, so I appear to be helping without really looking and preparing and spending time to have a look at well, what am I actually benefiting this community? How is my input here being a benefit? And can I evaluate that for myself? And is it beyond just m- my benefit? Or are there benefits that are going into this community as a result of that? And you have to do a little bit of self-education there and find out, well, what is a beneficial project? How do I evaluate that? And, and a lot of people aren't doing that at the moment. And so, yeah, it's about that status within your home community. Generally, if you're labouring for six to eight hours a day, there's probably going to be a benefit there. And a lot of people say, well, that's taking away from labour for the communities. But in a lot of cases, this is work that the community doesn't have time to do. And so if you're doing a six to eight hour labouring day when you're volunteering, and trust me, a lot of people don't want to do that, that is hard work, um, then generally there's probably a benefit to that community. But if you're in there for, like I said, teaching English for two hours a day, I think there's question marks about the benefit of that. Stephen Waring, Associate Professor from the University of Technology, Sydney Business School. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Lee Beter. See you next week.